Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the premiere episode, episode number one of the Right Take Podcast. I am the aforementioned host, Mark Tapson. And in the inclusive spirit of how Vice President Kamala Harris introduced herself a couple of months ago at a roundtable discussion, I'm going to announce my personal pronouns. My personal pronouns are he and him, because I'm a male. And when you're male, that's pretty much the limit on your pronoun choices. He and him, that's all you get. You're not allowed to use she and her because those are for women. And you can't use they and them as your pronouns unless you have multiple personalities. Okay, now that you know where I stand on personal pronouns, thank you for joining me at The Right Take. Allow me to tell you a little about this podcast so you can know what to expect. At the outset, I mentioned that The Right Take will deal with news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture. What does that mean, the intersection of politics and culture? Well, it refers to all the arenas, all the spheres of life that have been politicized and weaponized by the left to further its agenda. And today, that means everywhere. Every sphere of life has been politicized intentionally by the left. Every single one. Remember that feminist slogan from the 1960s, or or maybe 1970, the personal is the political? That was the left's declaration that everything is political, that every facet of our lives must reflect a revolutionary consciousness and activism. You know, as conservatives, we don't want politics to intrude into, much less dominate, every aspect of our lives. We want political political activism out of our sports. We want it out of our entertainment. We want it out of our bathrooms. We only want to have to deal with politics and politicians to the most limited degree necessary to make sure our liberties are protected and our lives run smoothly. Not so with the left. Politics is their religion. They're as fanatical about planet-saving and utopian social engineering as any religious fundamentalist, and they have succeeded over the course of the last half-century or more in politicizing everything in our lives. They've inserted it into our sports, our entertainment, our bathrooms. There is no escape from it at any given waking moment. And that's part of the reason we're so divided as Americans today. There is no neutral space where we might be able to come together and remind ourselves that politics and ideology aren't everything there is to life, that there are other things to talk about and engage in as part of our our shared humanity. There's no rest area for us to pull over in and take a break, nowhere to be free of the relentless political conflict that the left pushes because they are on a revolutionary mission to the death. As my friend the writer Michael Walsh is fond of pointing out, and I'll have him on as a guest in an episode very soon, The left never stops, they never sleep, they never quit, and therefore neither must we. And that's what this culture war is all about. The cultural realm is where the most titanic political struggles are taking place now. As the late, great Andrew Breitbart often used to say, say it with me, politics flows downstream from culture. Unlike the right, The left has understood that for many decades, and that's why they went from marching in the streets in the 1960s to making their long march through the institutions, 
a phrase that uh, that originated, if I remember right, with the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci in the early 20th century. He's one of the theorists who is actually at the root of our current culture war. And that's why the left essentially owns the culture now, from the entertainment industry to the news media to academia. And it's why we on the right are playing catch up. You know, for all the talk about the culture war that's raging in the United States, our side actually lost that war long ago. We're not in a position to be waging a war as equal combatants. We're only in a position now to be waging a culture insurgency or to, as an alternative, to carve out our own parallel culture. And for various reasons, I believe we have a gathering momentum on our side now about that issue. So there is reason to be not only optimistic, but exhilarated about this conflict. You know, there's a certain pessimistic streak in conservatism because we, unlike the left, we don't operate from a utopian worldview. We recognize the realities and the weakness of human nature. And so some conservatives look around at what seems to be a Western civilization in decline, an America in decline, and they say, well, it's over. Freedom and liberal democracy had a good run, but all good things must come to an end. And there are just certain inherent contradictions in liberal democracy that lay the groundwork for its own downfall. I don't have any patience for that kind of defeatism. Let's fight for God's sake. Put on the full armor of God, as the Bible says, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Well, friends, the day of evil is here. And I use that biblical reference because, make no mistake about it, we are engaged not just in a culture war, but in a spiritual war. And for some people, that sounds a little melodramatic or or hokey. And I would ask those people to take a look around at what is happening in this country and in the world at large, and tell me we are not facing the powers of darkness. The Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said that all the horrific things that had befallen his country since the 1917 Communist Revolution were because men had forgotten God. I think it's valid to say that the West today has not only forgotten God, but that we've tried to take God's place. We're in a secular age of declining traditional faiths, and when faith declines, political religions and a religion of the self fill that void. As a culture, we have rejected the conservative values of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and we've substituted the false, the evil, and the ugly. Faith in God is the force that binds together a community, a nation, a civilization. More than that, it binds the human and the divine. And when we break off that bond, in other words, when we believe that we and not God are the ones we have been waiting for, to paraphrase Barack Obama, then society will disintegrate too into meaninglessness, chaos, and an empty hedonism masquerading as personal freedom. Faith gives us the humility to recognize that we are flawed and fallen creatures, that our impulse to engineer our own heaven on earth will always end in misery. Not that we shouldn't strive to create a better world. It's just that human-centered utopian visions always end in dystopian realities. I didn't mean to turn this into a Sunday school lesson, but these really are the stakes in the culture war. It's a spiritual war for the soul of our civilization. We are currently in the grip of an accelerated, 
far-left agenda to overturn and eradicate everything. All our institutions, our traditions, our values, our constitution, our heroes, our incredible intellectual and cultural legacy in the West, everything. The radicals who are rewriting history, like the, the widely debunked but vastly influential 1619 Project, the radicals who are indoctrinating our young people with this divisive racist worldview of critical race theory, the radicals who are trying to redefine masculine and feminine out of existence, the radicals trying to deconstruct the nuclear family and replace it with a collectivist society under the paternal authority of the state, these are the enemies of civilization, and there can be no compromise with them. No middle grounds possible because their aim is to burn down everything in the cleansing fire of social justice and to erect a collectivist utopia, as I said, out of the ashes. We're in a civilizational war. And to win against our many enemies, foreign and domestic, we have to do more than win elections. We have to be victorious in the broader conflict of competing cultural narratives. Yes, politics is a critical arena, and we have to fight on that front, and thank God there are people eminently qualified to do that. I'm not one of them. We need politicians who understand how critical the culture is and who are willing and canny about fighting that fight. It's not enough anymore, if it ever was, for a conservative politician to just talk about championing limited government and the free market and the Second Amendment. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is a perfect example of the kind of politician we need on the right. He knows that the crucial battlegrounds today are in the cultural arena. He's taken the fight to the groomers at Disney and to the critical race theorists who are trying to indoctrinate children in Florida classrooms. He gets it. And that's a big reason that the left is already out to demonize and destroy him. So, on this podcast, we're not so much going to address what, what I would call strictly political issues, as we are topics that range across everywhere the culture war is being waged, and that cover every strategy the left is using to wage that assault. Cultural Marxism, critical race theory, education, and that's a topic, by the way, that I'm passionate about because I'm a homeschooling parent. My wife and I homeschool our own kids, and I also teach teens in our, our homeschooling community. We're going to talk about gender ideology on this podcast, uh, the war on masculinity, the war on the family, the war on religion, or more specifically, the war on Christians and Jews, because no war is being waged on Buddhism or Islam or even Satanism. We'll talk about Hollywood and showbiz, cancel culture, drag queen story hours and libraries, the left's sacrament of infanticide, oh, I mean abortion, the left's manipulation of the language, personal pronouns, identity politics, the great green boondoggle of climate change hysteria, the whole gamut of fronts in the culture war. That's what the right take is all about. And I'm excited to say that we've got some extraordinary guests already lined up to share their insights and their inspiration about a wide range of topics, including our first guest coming up next. So if you want to hear more, please like, share, and subscribe. You know the drill. And hang on while we shift gears a bit and welcome The Right Take's first ever guest. Heather McDonald 
is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author. Her writing on the really critical issues of our time, such as higher education, immigration, policing, and criminal justice reform, has appeared at the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, New Republic, all the usual suspects. Uh, among her previous books are The War on Cops and The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. In that one, she examines the, the subversive impact that this seemingly innocuous word diversity is having on America. I've read both books, and I can tell you they are essential reading. She's received many awards for her work in crime and immigration journalism. She's even testified before Congress on those issues. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions has even called her the greatest thinker on criminal justice in America today. I personally consider everything she writes to be an absolute must-read. Heather McDonald, welcome to the Right Take podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Mark, and congratulations on your new podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's a genuine honor to have you on. Um, if we could start by talking about your book, The Diversity Delusion, uh, which was published in 2018, uh, the left you know, has made the word diversity and its close friends, equity and inclusion, into pretty much household words, and they sound very harmless, very innocuous. Who could be opposed to diversity, equity, and inclusion? But those words actually have more politically charged meanings in a social justice context, don't they? Equity, for example, means not equality. But discrimination means present discrimination to atone for past discrimination. So when the left says diversity, what do they mean? Well, the real meaning, Mark, of diversity is racial preference. Uh, Diversity means if you have a diversity regime, it means that you have concluded that any meritocratic colorblind standards that have a disparate impact on so-called underrepresented minorities, black and Hispanic, are per se racist, and you are going to guard those standards, whether it's, let's say, uh, SAT scores for college admissions or medical college admission tests for medical school admissions. You're going to discard that objective colorblind test of achievement in favor of racial preferences. Uh, Given the vast academic skills gap that exists in this country, the average Black 12th grader reads the level of the average white 9th grader. Uh, 53% of black 8th graders don't even possess partial mastery of 8th of grade math skills. And that, that deficit never, never closes. Uh, you can either have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. So any institution that tells you it's celebrating diversity uh, is telling you sotto voce, and you know will never admit this explicitly, that it has guarded colorblind standards and has lowered those standards in order to racially engineer a diverse uh, population, whether it's student body, faculty, researchers in a science lab, lawyers in a law firm, bankers in a bank. Uh, engineers at a, at a big tech firm, on and on. That is what it always means. Yeah. And so the left's assumption underlying the word diversity is that we are a systemically racist 
country and that it and that racism is literally as they often phrase it baked into the system uh and so that that's the assumption right if there are disparities in outcomes between or among different races must be attributed to that systemic racism and there couldn't possibly be any other factors in play is that right that's right and that would be a valid hypothesis if there was no vast disparity in skills you know if if black reading and math skills were the same as white and asian math skills and we saw disparities in representation in uh you know, the elite law schools or medical schools or colleges, then that would be a valid hypothesis to to investigate. You know, are these schools discriminating against black applicants because everybody is equally proficient in academic skills? But given when we can still get our hands on the data, and believe me, Mark, there's a massive effort underfoot to simply cancel all standardized test scores so that we will no longer have the data with which to rebut the systemic racism narrative. Given the vastness of those academic skills gaps, it is way, way premature to say that racism explains the lack of proportional representation at elite New York law firm partner ranks, or again, at, at Google among its, its uh, computer engineers. And, uh, you know, that, that applies everywhere. It also applies to the criminal law. We're told that the only reason that blacks are overrepresented in prison is racism. That ignores uh, the vast criminal offending gaps. And as far as us being endemically, systemically racist, I would say that was an accurate picture of the United States up until, sadly, all too recently. I think that there's something that the 1619 Project gets right. I think if you look at the way many white Americans behaved throughout at least half of the 20th century, there was a concerted effort to constantly belittle black that suggests that, that white identity somehow was set up in opposition to black and that, and that that was something that was part of the American populace. So I think I'm willing to make common cause with the otherwise historically ignorant 1619 project on that historical reality, but where I part ways completely, unequivocally, and unapologetically is to say that racism characterizes our world today. That is empirically demonstrably false. There is not a single university that is not exercising vast racial preferences on behalf of minorities, Black and Hispanic students, on behalf of Black and Hispanic faculty members, there's not a single law firm, bank, corporation, uh, you know, research lab that isn't exercising the same racial preferences. The reality today is Black privilege, not white privilege. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see this. Uh, I don't see the left's obsession with diversity and equity and inclusion actually unifying Americans or, uh, or or resolving our racial differences. Call me crazy, but I'm getting the distinct impression that it's actually exacerbating the racial divide in America and reversing the gains that were made by the civil rights movement of the 60s. That, that so-called colorblind approach is now considered flat-out racist uh, and a sign of white privilege. Is the, is the left's emphasis on diversity and anti-racism and all the rest of it, is that even actually intended to resolve the racial divide, or is it intentionally a sort of divide-and-conquer strategy to keep Americans in a perpetual state uh, mutual antagonism and resentment and suspicion. Well, I, I think that the people engaged in that crusade sincerely believe that America is racist. They, they've just brainwashed themselves. And so they think that they are engaged in the only way to ensure that Blacks and Hispanics uh, are treated fairly, which is through racial preferences, which through the constant subjection of the white populace to this narrative that it is systemically racist. See President Biden picking up on the theme of, of Barack Obama uh, that, you know, this stain that is indelible, and he goes around constantly accusing white Americans of violence against black and, you know, wanting to keep blacks down. When the reality is, if you're if we're going to talk about interracial violence, it's virtually one way. Blacks commit 88 percent of all interracial violence between blacks and whites, and whites and blacks. Um, whites are not the reason that blacks die at 13 times the rate of whites. Black criminals who are killing blacks. Um, so I don't I don't think you necessarily need to go to some higher order explanation, which is well. They're, they're, you know, engaging in these preferences for the sake of dividing America. As I say, I think they really believe it, but it is dividing America. And I'm just amazed how docile whites are. I mean, they, the, the prime example, as far as I'm concerned, is Joe Biden's inaugural speech as president that was hailed across the political divide as unifying. It was hailed as unifying not just by CNN and the New York Times, but by a Wall Street Journal columnist, a conservative columnist, uh, Ben Shapiro, sort of mocked it as being so saccharine. But it was anything but unifying. The theme of it, in part, was white supremacists and, and you know these, these awful white people. And whites are so used to being accused of racism, they just hang their heads low and and promise to do better next time around. At least the elite whites are doing that. I don't know how much longer, though, if if they're hearing it, you know, sort of middle American whites are going to put up with this. And I also don't know how much longer white male sons are going to and and their parents are going to put up with it because it is the case that if you're a white male student hoping to get into professions or getting into graduate schools, you are the last on the totem pole, no matter how good your grades are and how much you've accomplished as a student and what your academic record is, 
you are still going to be regarded as a pariah and you will be accepted only you know after they filled their diversity quotas so i don't know if if whites are in, indefinitely willing to cop to phantom racism or if at some point there will be some kind of revolt against this this anti-racism disparate impact ideology Your book, uh, The Diversity Delusion, focuses on universities, but this imperative, this whole social justice imperative behind the word diversity has flooded out of universities into every boardroom, every human resources department, every classroom from pre-K through grad school, literally every field and institution, including, probably most alarmingly, the medical field, and that is the subject of a recent article of yours at, at City Journal Online called The Corruption of Medicine. In that piece, I just want to read a short passage from it real quickly. In that piece that you write, sorry, in that piece you write, virtually every major medical organization has embraced the idea medicine is an inequity-producing enterprise. And you mentioned that the American Medical Association has something called the Organizational Strategic Plan to Embed Racial Justice and Advance Health Equity which you say is virtually indistinguishable from a black studies department's mission statement. Uh, you also write that anti-racism advocacy has become a core component of medical education. Heather, what is happening in the field of medicine? Because I don't think anyone knows about this. It's horrible. It's, it's absolutely horrible. And what's so incomprehensible to me is that the medical leaders, the deans of medical schools, the head of the American Medical Association, the American Association of Medical Colleges, they're all on board this phony narrative that medicine is shot through with systemic racism. That is not true, but they are willing to water down standards of, of medical admissions, of medical education, of medical licensing. They're willing to encumber scientific medical research with reams of diversity red tape that, that is taking researchers' time away from trying to find a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's disease. It's a complete sellout. Uh, and, and many doctors know this, but they're all cowards and terrified of losing their jobs. And so they, they keep their heads down. The few people who have spoken out, whether it's against racial preferences in, college, in medical school admissions or getting rid of objective measures of, of, of accomplishment, like they've, they've gotten rid of the grades for the first step in the medical licensing exam, so-called step one, which is taken at the end of the second year of medical school to test students' absorption of basic scientific concepts about the body and cells and, and metabolism and, and pathology, uh, they've gone pass-fail for step one because it's the usual reason it has disparate impact on blacks and Hispanics. Uh, and and those that have those those doctors and Professors who have spoken out against this watering down of meritocratic standards have found themselves stigmatized. They've lost positions. They're absolute pariahs. Their, their colleagues won't talk to them. It's really stunning. And just as the disparate impact crusade in law enforcement has resulted in us not enforcing the law and thousands more black lives being taken, the disparate impact diversity crusade in medicine will eventually end up 
as in, as in engineering, uh, taking lives, jeopardizing lives, because we are passing people along who are, are not as qualified as their peers, and we're, we're covering that up because we want to pretend that there are no academic skills gaps. How do we push back against that kind of narrative? I mean, you mentioned that the faculty members or students who dare suggest that maybe, A, none of this is relevant to medicine, or, or B, that these so-called systems of power and privilege and oppression don't exist in America today. It, how do we push back against that kind of narrative if these faculty members and students are being uh, ostracized best? And if that's, if that's sort of the narrative being promoted by academia and the media and in the medical field itself, uh, what, <laughs> how, how can we resist this movement? It's very hard, and I'm just submitting a manuscript for my next book, which is called The Dangers of Disparate Impact, which is on, on this very topic. And oh, you know, I was going to ask you, actually, I was going to ask you, actually, what, uh, at the end of the interview, I was going to ask you if you could give us a foretaste of what you're working on now, so that I'm glad to hear you've got another book on the, in the pipeline. Yeah, and, you know, one is always asked, well, what's the solution? You know, and, and it's sort of a journalistic expectation genre. You've got to come out with positive proposals. Uh, and I'm often sort of skeptical. I, I tend to be somewhat fatalistic about this, but I scratch my head. I mean, I, there's, there's different ways of answering that. I know what has to happen. That's different than how it happens. What has to happen is a relentless countering of the racism narrative with the fact of the academic skills gap. You know, every time they point to the lack of proportional representation in an institution, and say that's because of racism, I or somebody else, and I do it, you know, I, I've got the ability to do that. I'm going to come back with the facts on either the crime gaps or the skills gaps that are a much better explanation for racial disparities than racism. But how you do that more broadly when you've got this massive fear factor is very hard. And, you know, I propose something in this book, which is pretty wan. It's it's you know it's not it's not it's not very robust. Which is but just maybe you know if there was a large large membership organization of people who believed in colorblind standards, who believed that watering down merit, whether it's in engineering or medicine, or or biology or classical music or art um, or literature, is not a way to keep civilization going. If it had enough members that it could have a critical mass, and if it was out there constantly uh, countering this narrative, maybe that would help. But as I say, what has to happen is the facts get out there. How that happens is maybe for somebody that has a, a better sense of political creativity than I have, but, but it's very, very challenging because the elites, the elites are terrified about inner city black dysfunction. They're terrified. We, we as a country turn our eyes away from it, but it is the source of so much of these problems. You have a, a, a just viciously anti-achievement ethic in the black inner city, the anti-acting white ethic, that scorns academic effort, 
You have a ruthless indifference to life as the dozens of drive-by shootings that occur every day in America, taking dozens of black lives every day in America, as the beatings, as the lootings, as the stompings on these elderly Asians show. It's, it's, a, it's a culture of complete cruelty and savagery. And nobody knows what to do about it at this point. And so we're turning our eyes away from it and pretending that white supremacy is the problem. It is not the problem. That is not what's holding blacks back today. What's holding blacks back is a culture that does not value achievement and hard work. And of course, there are lots of people who do, both in the inner city and elsewhere, that are law-abiding, that are raising their kids right, uh, that want the police, that understand the need for law and order, that are trying to run businesses. They deserve our support. Uh, but they're not the ones that are put forward by the media. Instead, the media is always celebrating dysfunction and, and victimhood. In terms of fighting back with facts and statistics, as, as you mentioned, since you've written this article about the corruption of medicine, well, let me back up. I know that in the past, when you have spoken to college audiences about the hot-button issues of crime and policing, uh, like you just mentioned, or campus sexual assault, or the problems with diversity, your very impressively marshaled array of facts and statistics has been met with outrage and disruption in the audience to silence you because you're challenging the narrative that must not be questioned, especially not questioned with facts and statistics which seem to just drive uh, the other side wild. Uh, have you had a chance to speak publicly? to campus audiences since you've written that article about medicine about that topic and are you getting the same kind of resistance no i haven't spoken uh and and it just came out in the last two weeks or so so but you're absolutely right mark i mean it's just it's remarkable the facts don't matter the effort to spin them to ignore them uh and and that's truly disheartening because if if there's no ability to use facts to make an argument then there's no making argument you there's there's brute force and um that's not a way for that a civil society can proceed without violence so it you know i don't know i um i i have to say i'm not i'm not optimistic at least in the near future because I just see, I've I've been writing about the corruption of our civilization, of our of academia, of our respect for great literature, great music, great art for decades, and nothing has improved. It's only gotten worse. The the know nothingism of of universities, and I'm not speaking only of students, but they're bad enough. But the faculty themselves just gets worse and worse. And the post-George Floyd hysteria took over all elite institutions in this country, all of them using their own professions, whether it's law or medicine or classical music of, of racism, has just been extraordinary. Uh, so again, I leave it to people who are wiser in 
political organizing and knowing how to leverage things to figure out a way out of this. If I if I were determined to be optimistic, you know, there's the little rays of light like Len Yonkin and, and DeSantis that are, are pushing back against the racism narrative to a certain extent, but m- much more needs to be done. Yeah, I think it's I think one of the things it's going to take is politicians like DeSantis uh, who talk about more than just you know, limited government and uh, defending the Second Amendment, that they really understand the culture war and they're willing to fight in that arena. And that's the kind of politician we're going to need to uh, focus on, at least to fight this, this battle on the political front. Uh, I, I want to follow up with you about what you mentioned a moment ago about your, your defense of our civilization and our culture. But first, let me back up again to your your article about medicine. Um, I just want to note some of these things, a couple of points you bring up, which I think are just astounding, um, because I think many people believe that this um, this anti intellectual worldview behind uh, racial justice impacts only the humanities or the soft sciences and things like that, and, and that it couldn't get a foothold in the hard sciences or the field of medicine. But you you note in this article that more than half of the top 50 medical schools recently surveyed require courses in systemic racism. And you, you mentioned that uh, faculty are responsible for teaching how to engage with, quote, systems of power, privilege, and oppression, unquote, in order to, quote, disrupt oppressive practices. Quote. Uh, you, you even write that funding that once went to scientific research is now being redirected from trying to cure Alzheimer's and lymphoma the fighting white privilege and cis heteronormativity. Good Lord, what you? What is this? What will this ultimately mean for patients, uh, and especially for those of us who fall into the oppressor category? For example, I'm a straight white conservative homeschooling Christian male. You you can't be more of an oppressor than I am, uh, according to their standards. What can someone like me expect if I find myself in a medical a facility that that has been indoctrinated with this kind of mindset. I, maybe I'm just, you know, getting too far ahead of things here, but I think for patients, this is something to to be terrified. There is no way you can be overly pessimistic <laughs> about any of this. You know, one's worst nightmares are likely to be uh, realized. In fact. There is, in most institutions now, overt white culling going on. I mean, that is the name of the game. Whites are being culled, uh, whether it's symphony orchestras or opera companies. Whites are being culled from from museum, docents. Uh, all this is in my book coming out. But we saw this during the COVID uh, uh, hysteria, where time and time again, Various public health authorities, whether the federal government or state public health authorities, uh, decided that they were not going to prioritize vaccines to the most vulnerable population, which is the elderly, because the elderly are disproportionately white. There's a, you know, the, the age distribution is different among whites than it is among underrepresented minorities. There's more young people in, among Hispanics and blacks and more older people among whites. So you had uh, 
public health authorities saying, well, we're not going to give vaccines to the elderly because that would be helping whites too much. And we don't want to do that. So it is not inconceivable that uh, a extremely woke medical practice would say to whites, we'll go back to the end of the line. You know, we'll treat you after we get take care of the underrepresented minorities who may be in the waiting room. I think, you know, more certainly it is going to slow down the pace of medical progress. And we just take for granted the extraordinary triumphs of medicine and public health, giving us clean water and clean milk and freedom from these grotesque infectious diseases that have were the fate of, of humanity for most of its history and still are in, in Africa. Uh, and, and just the slow accretion of scientific knowledge in the West by these citizen scientists who tinkered, you know, to try and understand the workings of the heart or chemistry or oxygen. It's just extraordinary. We, we are ingrates who take this all for granted. But now if you're a cancer researcher, you're required to spend a whole lot of time making sure that the test population in you know, in a drug trial uh, is proportionally diverse, even if you're based in Nebraska and there are no blacks in your catchment area to put in the drug trial and you're testing a drug that affects a disease that overwhelmingly affects whites, you're still, I mean, I I write about in, in the City Journal article, a cancer researcher who had her funding pulled by the National Institute of Health because she didn't have enough blacks in her clinical trial. But again, this was a cancer that overwhelmingly affects whites, not blacks. So there were no black cancer patients with this particular cancer to enroll. Nevertheless, her drug research has been shut down by the federal government because there aren't enough blacks. I mean, it is happening on a daily basis now. Hmm. Well, I encourage everybody listening to hunt down that article in City Journal by Heather McDonald, The the Corruption of Medicine. It is a must-read. One of the things, Heather, that I like about your writing, apart from your sense of humor uh, and your perspective, is that you have your eye on the big picture. And that's something that I think comes through explicitly in the last chapters of your book on the diversity delusion, where you write about the importance of the humanities and the, the true purpose of a university. I just want to read one short passage from the book to make that point. You write that the the characteristic academic traits of our time are narcissism, an obsession with victimhood, and a relentless determination to reduce the stunning complexity of the past to the shallow categories of identity and class politics. Sitting atop an entire civilization of aesthetic wonders the contemporary academic wants only to study oppression, preferably his own. And then you go on to say, uh, you want to talk about the importance of, of what you call the constant sophisticated dialogue between past and present that is the defining feature of Western civilization. What, what are the ramifications of universities silencing that dialogue and, and neglecting to transmit the incredible intellectual and artistic legacy of our civilization to the next generation. Human beings that have no clue about what it means to be human. The 
the inheritance of literature and of art and of music is to allow us to escape our petty, ignorant, narrow selves and live in a world of understanding of experience far broader than our own. The great novelist past understood whatever, you know, that the, their identities is irrelevant. Their understanding of, of sexual yearning, of jealousy, of power, of, of loss, of, of uh, you know, sadism and, and generosity and competition is just e extraordinary. And, and they give words to feelings we may somehow have inchoately felt, uh, but, but that allow us to understand what it has meant to be human, the differences in human civilization, uh, which can be stunning, you know, completely different ways of organizing family, of organizing village life, authority, as well as the similarities. And if you don't know that, you have lived a life of shallowness. And I have conservative friends that do not have much knowledge of the humanities, and I'm, I'm sorry for them. Uh, you know, knowing the history of art gives you a visual map of how human sensibility changed what the I, I I think the evolution of style, whether it's in the visual arts or in literature, in how language is used or in music, is one of the greatest dramas in in human history. It's as, as dramatic as the evolution of nations or or who who fights and wins and loses wars, because all this stylistic evolution from say medieval romance uh, and allegory to the evolution of, of pastoral poetry and then the realistic novel in the 19th century and going over the Augustan period with its satire and highly ornate verse. These are all different ways that the geniuses among us discovered and developed to give expression to human passion and sorrow. And if you don't know that, you're living in a very, very shallow world. And to be perfectly honest, I feel sorry for you. And it is not too late. Go out there, get yourself, I don't know, civilization, get yourself the great courses, start reading, start studying art, start listening to music, because you're gonna die, we're all gonna die. And there's, we have a very finite time on earth to, to immerse ourselves in the greatness of the past. And I wonder, you know, we see now with the females, young females just in an utter breakdown in our culture now, with all of the starting out first with the eating disorders, then the cutting, and now the trans hysteria, which is total social contagion you know, and is based on the revulsion of the flesh, which is a centuries-long, millennia-long uh, instinct that humans have had. But if, if all of this despair and suicide and mental illness, so-called, is partly a result of the fact that education no longer gives students beauty. It, it immerses them immediately in, 
you know, young adult fiction of dysfunction, of homelessness, of drug addiction, of, uh, you know, racial conflict, of people that are thought to be marginalized. And it never gives young people and children the ability to just use their imagination and lose themselves in fictional worlds that are charming and witty and clever and adorable, like great British children's literature. And so I think that our current mental breakdown, the drug use, may have something to do with the fact that the adults have given up on their duty to transmit an inheritance of beauty and greatness to younger generations. Beautifully said. Bravo. I could not agree more. And I don't think we could end on a better note than that, actually. So, Heather McDonald, thank you very much for your time and your insights today. Thank you for coming on The Right Take. Please keep up the great work and come back anytime. Thank you so much, Mark. And I would just say, as, as, as a homeschooler as you are, you know, and you guys, I, I suspect, know about classical academies. And you, I hope, are giving your kids that literature. And that is the most important thing you can do, as well as a sense of right and wrong. But if, if you are carrying that on, you are carrying our civilization forward. Absolutely. That is actually my, my personal mission. And I not only teach my own kids, but I'm also teaching teens uh, from elsewhere in our homeschooling community. So that, that's a really important imperative for me. So uh, thank you for the inspiration for that. Thank you, Mark. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.